Romans chapter 13, in verse 8, Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Remember in chapter 12, the theme was service. In chapter 13, the theme is citizenship. In chapter 14, the theme will become personal conviction. But whether or not we are talking about service, or whether or not we're talking about citizenship, or whether or not we're talking about personal conviction, Paul invites you to consider and soak everything in love. Chapter 13 began with the instruction about our citizenship. And his focus is always on the practical questions of why should I do this? How will I be able to do this? And so he points each and every one of us to this love. We are informed by Jesus' love. We are governed by Jesus' love. This is what gives us the ability to conduct ourselves amongst ourselves. This is what gives us the ability to express ourselves towards the government and to express ourselves to our enemies. So his attention is this subject of the law of love. And he points to our debt of love in verse 8 and our duty to love in verse 9 and our desire to love in verse 10. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, Christians are taught of God to love one another, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. God the Father taught us to love by sending his Son, 1 John 4, 19. God the Son taught us to love by giving his life and by commanding us to love each other in John 13, 34. The Holy Spirit teaches us to love one another by pouring out God's love into our hearts, Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Wearsby writes, quote, the most important lesson in the school of faith is to love one another. Love enriches all that it touches, unquote. And so Paul has spoken of our duty towards the rulers of government in verses 1 through 4. Why we are to do it in verses 5 through 7. An exhortation to love because love satisfies the demands of the law and does what's best for its neighbors in verses 8 through 10. And if you're wondering, that simple phrase, love one another, doesn't just appear once or twice or three times or even five times or even ten times. There are 16 times When it's expressly and specifically said, love one another. It was Jonathan Swift, the author of Gulliver's Travels, who wrote, quote, We have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. 
I thought that that was interesting. Because there's a kind of religion that's so small that all it does is point out the differences. And then there's a kind of religion that is so large that all we can see is what Jesus has done. Now we understand what Paul meant when he said, I purpose to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. So he begins with the debt of love in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. Paul points out that legitimate debt requires legitimate payment. Owe no one anything is in the context of what we already read, the citizenship of the Christian. We don't owe the government. We don't owe the rulers. We don't owe the the magistrates. We're to love one another. Friends, enemies, government. Loving one another has been called the basic principle of the Christian life. Well, does this mean that Christian is forbidden to incur debt? Owe no one anything. Well, there are several well-known Christian leaders and thinkers who simply based on this one particular scripture refuse to entertain debt, refuse to embrace debt. I think of J. Hudson Taylor, who was the great missionary to China, who sought nothing from anyone and paid all of his debts all along the way. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the greatest Baptist preacher ever, held the same conviction And he became one of the pastors of one of the very first mega churches in human history. In 1860 and 1870, his church erupted and a thousand people started coming to London. And then 2,000 and then 4,000 and then 5,000 people and they had to find a place to meet. And so he wanted to negotiate for a particular space And there was a particular woman who was going to his his church and her husband was a very wealthy man. And he said, Spurgeon has approached me about purchasing this property, but the, the foolish man only wants to pay half of what it's worth. And she said, you should do it. He is going to start praying and God is going to command that you give it to him. Does the Bible forbid debt? I'm going to suggest to you that the Bible does not forbid borrowing or legal transactions that involve interest. The Bible does forbid the charging of interest, a high interest, robbing the brethren, failing to pay honest debts. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 25, Matthew 25, 27, Luke 19, 23, Jesus draws on pictures of banking and investing. Jesus taught us to pray, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors, suggesting that sometimes that's exactly what would happen. And some have twisted our Lord's words into a statement of absolution of all monetary obligations that in fact you don't have to pay back your debts but you are misinterpreting the scripture. The verb tense is continual and present. It says continue to avoid owing anyone anything which suggests Paul is saying 
Don't develop a lifestyle or a habit of continually owing people money. Pay your bills. Avoid unnecessary debt. Never sign a contract that you can't keep. To make Romans 13.8 apply to every kind of legal obligation involving any kind of debt, I think is a stretch. One of the reasons why is because of what Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 42, where Jesus says, Give to him that asks you, and from him that would borrow from you, do not turn away. There are times when people have needs. So again, the context is the custom of paying tribute and taxes. Never borrow money if you know that you're not going to repay the money. It's dishonest to borrow money and make the creditor wait. It's the same as stealing. And perhaps nothing ruins a Christian's testimony more than chronic indebtedness. Christians are to be faithful and Christians are to be frugal and Christians are to be honest. And there's few things that are more disappointing When a Christian isn't honest. So leave no debt outstanding. Pay it. Paul is pointing out that there's two kinds of debts. Things that we can pay back. And things that we can never fully repay. We have a continual obligation to love. This is the kind of debt. This is the kind of obligation. That never brings you back to a zero balance. We can never go to our love file and write paid in full because we have a continual obligation when we wake up in the morning. It's an outstanding debt. When we live our lives throughout the day, it is a debt. When we go to bed every single night, we owe it to everyone to love them. Roy Lauren called this our magnificent obligation. And of course, the love that Paul speaks of is that love that's translated agape. You know that love. It's also called a sacrificial love. It's been called God's love. It's the love that looks out for the other. We might think of this as the kind of love that's willing to say and do what is in the best interest of the person loved. It isn't a warm, fuzzy feeling of affection that wells up inside of you. This is the kind of love that isn't restricted to people who are close to us. But rather, this is the kind of love that reaches out to those who may be far away. This is the kind of love that extends to people who are not like us. And then Paul will even go one step further. This is the kind of love for people who are bent on harming us. We might best think of this love in terms of Jesus Christ. This is the kind of love evidenced by his own life. This is a love that we struggle to define and we find even harder to live. But Jesus provides us the best insight because it's a type of love that is selfless and sacrificial. This is the love described in 1 Corinthians 13. Hinted at in Romans chapter 12. But clearly, it's the love that's evidenced by the character and the conduct of Jesus. This is the love that goes beyond platitudes and pithy sayings. And finds its 
identity, in the mission, and the destiny of Jesus. Paul suggests to you that this is a love that basically is best determined by what we actually do with one another and for one another. Love can only be known by the action it prompts, not by the feelings that it generates. So Christianity, in fact, is not a life of do's and don'ts, of regulations, but rather Christianity is a life that's marked by love and abundant life. It is a principle. Love is an obligation, but it's more. It's way more than an obligation. It's an opportunity to reflect the character of Christ, to share his love, to share the message of the gospel, to lift the restrictions and the prohibitions that keep people apart from one another. Henry Drummond was fond of saying, you will find as you look back on your life that the moments when you really lived are the moments when you have done the things in the spirit of love, unquote. Paul understands that one day will be your last day. The last day you wake up. The last day you have coffee or tea. The last day that you have lunch or dinner. And because one day will be the last day, it behooves us to live our lives as the most important day we could ever live. So he talks about the duty to love. Look in verse 9 for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying. Namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Phillips Brooks, whose statue appears in front of his church in Boston, said, duty makes us do things well, but love makes us do them beautifully. Love is a debt. Love is a duty. And it's the highest form of duty. The Bible links love and belief and behavior into one singular unit. People who do not love really do not believe. The loveless person who says, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the church. I believe in you isn't really telling you the truth. Love is the divine mark that says we're born again in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. Love is the unanswerable testimony of allegiance to Christ, John 14, 15. Love is a legible seal. It's the tangible proof that we love the Lord, 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. When you experience the love of God, John writes and says... It is impossible not to walk in love, be in love, express love. And since love is the evidence of our faith in Jesus and our proof of life in Christ and the stamp of genuine authenticity, since love is our motive for service and since love is our motive for citizenship, and since later love is going to inform our personal convictions... Now we begin to understand what Jesus said when, meant when he said in John 14, 15, 
If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, there are two main divisions in the Decalogue. The Decalogue are the Ten Commandments. Deca, meaning ten, log, meaning word. One is vertical. That means it goes towards God. The other is horizontal, which means that it speaks of our comfort, expression, communication with one another. Paul is assuming that people have a vertical relationship of love towards God. Otherwise, the last five become an impossibility. Paul is making an extraordinary claim. If you love, if you honestly love, if you honestly seek to discharge the debt of love, you will fulfill whatever outstanding duty we may or may not have towards the law. If you love, when you love, you will automatically keep the commandments. Love's duty is to obey the commandments, not because we are under the law but rather because we are under grace and rather because we are under Christ. So many of you have heard the expression, Jesus is the fulfillment of of the law. So I need to ask you a question. Is Jesus the fulfillment of the law? Is that a meaningful statement? Must it mean something? That's the right answer. Paul says, love is the fulfillment of the law. Is that a meaningful statement? And is it true? It must be. So which is it? Is Christ the fulfillment of the law? Or is love the fulfillment of the law? That's the right answer. Both are the fulfillment of the law. You guys are really catching on. And these two aren't mutually exclusive. Grace brings love. Love brings Christ. His love informs our obligations. And so Paul zeroes in on the last five commandments because they deal with love's duties towards each other. You shall not commit adultery. You don't know how many times I've had people come into my office and say, But we love each other. And I have to say, adultery never takes place because people love too much. Adultery always takes place when people love too little. You see, love doesn't allow physical passion to sweep you away into uncharted territory. Real love, real love. With real love comes real restraint and real respect. Romantic love may say, I want that person. But biblical love, Christ's love says, I want what's best for that person. William MacDonald writes, love doesn't exploit another person's body. Immorality does. Love doesn't take another person's life. Murder does. Love doesn't steal another person's property. Theft does. Love doesn't deny justice to others. False witness does. 
Love doesn't even entertain wrong desires for another person's possessions. Coveting does. When I was preparing this study, I I remembered a statement. I have an archaeologist friend who says, an archaeologist is the best husband that a woman could ever have. And I said, why? And he said, because the older she gets, the more interesting she becomes. I like that. You shall not murder. Doesn't it seem like maybe one of the most ridiculous things that that we even have to ask and answer this most odd question? Why? Why is murder such a big deal? Now we think that we know the evident answer. Clearly, killing people is not a good idea. It's a wrong thing. It isn't just about killing people. Love brings life. Love builds up. Love doesn't tear down. Love's longing is to make an enemy a friend. And now we begin to understand what it means that Jesus is love and that Jesus does the loving thing because Jesus makes you his enemy, his friend. He finds you. Instead of dealing with you according to your sin, instead of rewarding you according to your your iniquity, he finds you and he loves you. He selflessly sacrifices for you in order to bring you to himself. Love cleanses our heart. Love cleanses until the desire is gone. Love cleanses and then satisfies. Faults are thick when love is thin. It was Ogden Nash, the famous poet, who said, to keep your marriage brimming with love in the loving cup. Whenever you're wrong, admit it. Whenever you're right, shut up. Someone once asked me on my radio program, if someone came to you and they asked for marriage advice, in just two words, what would be the best advice you could give? And I thought, should I say, yes, dear? What would be The best two words that will preserve your marriage and keep you going forward. And I think I wound up saying, if I were to try and sum it up in two words, I think I would just simply say, she's right. (laughs) You love your neighbor as yourself. In Leviticus 19, 18 It says, never seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone, but love your neighbor as yourself. The very next statement is critical. I am the Lord. Look at the context. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Matthew 22, 39. Jesus says a second is equally important. Love 
your neighbor as yourself. It was G.K. Chesterton who I think borrowed it from Mark Twain who said, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and love our enemies quite possibly because generally they're one and the same person. Jesus says that your neighbor isn't the person who lives closest to you. Your neighbor is the person who you come in contact with. And then you discover that you have some kind of obligation towards that person. Catherine Voss tells this story. She says, I teach a kids club at my church. And arriving home after a rough evening, my husband asked me how things went. And I said, quote, our lesson was on loving your neighbor. And two girls kept bothering each other. Which ones were the problem, he asked. Well, their names, Faith and Charity. Yeah, it becomes a type, a picture. That even if you have the right name, you might have the wrong behavior. Charles Krauthammer wrote, The reigning cliche of the day is that in order to love others, one must first learn to love oneself. This formulation, love thyself, then thy neighbor is a license for unremitting self-indulgence because the quest for self-love is endless. By the time you have finally learned to love yourself, you'll be playing golf at Leisure World, unquote. And I think he's right. I think that we've missed the point that the Bible doesn't say love yourself because it, it, it simply concedes the fact that you do. Most people... Most people don't want to harm themselves. St. Francis de Sales was right when he wrote, quote, Self-love is cunning. It pushes and insinuates itself into everything while making us believe it is not there at all, unquote. But it is there. Making demands. Making commands. No wonder Jesus said, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life in John 12, 25. So love is pure. When self is slain, Billy Graham said, you have an ego, a consciousness of being an individual. But that doesn't mean that you're to worship yourself or to think constantly about yourself or to live entirely for yourself. And he's right. It's not normal. It's not normal. It's not normal to want to hurt yourself. And so the Bible is simply saying, it's not normal. It's not normal. It's not normal for the Christian to want the people who are closest to them to be hurt. Those of you who are familiar with the medical profession, you know their motto. The first and chief motto of the medical community used to be, do no... Yeah, you know. You evaluate all that you do and life In terms, not in the harm that it's going to to promote, but the good that it's going to do. And so in verse 10, he talks about our desire to love. Look what it says. Love does no 
harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. I thought Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. He is. I thought love is the fulfillment of the law. It is. They're one and the same. The New Living Translation translates this, Love does no wrong to anyone, so love satisfies all of God's requirements, unquote. Paul tells Galatians in chapter 5, verse 4, he says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens, fulfill the law of Christ. There's a well-known saying, Love God. Do what you like. If love really is a guiding principle, if it's the driving force, if love is more than just a silly love song. I know I'm thinking Paul McCartney thoughts right now. I look around me and I see it isn't so. Oh no. Sometimes the world, well, we'll stop. But, but here's the point. In real love, you want what's best for the person. In real love, you do no harm. In romantic love, you want them. And again, Aquinas said, in real love, you'll want what's best for them. Love's moral conscience fulfills the law out of debt, out of duty. But there's something else that springs up, a profound desire. And that's the point. If you really love your neighbor as yourself, you won't contemplate a plan to harm their soul, to harm their body, to harm their possessions. In fact, you will do desire an opportunity to pray for their soul, to pray for their health, to pray for their safety, to protect their possessions. And so again, now we see it. Jesus defines your neighbor not simply as the person who lives next door, but rather the person who God brings into your life so that you can help them. Remember Luke chapter 10, verse 30. You all know the story about the man who was coming up from the road uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho. How he fell among thieves. How a religious leader went by and another religious leader went by. And he makes the hero of the story a Samaritan. A person who was neither Jew, who was neither Gentile. But in the Jewish world seemed to typify the worst of both worlds. And there's good reason why he makes the Samaritan the hero in the story. Because the hero in the story becomes the person who refuses to walk by, but who stops and loves. It's natural to love them that love us. It's supernatural to love them that hate us. Thomas Fuller wrote, quote, Nature teaches us to love our friends, 
but religion our enemies. When Thomas Fuller said that, he wasn't talking about Buddhism and he wasn't talking about Hinduism and he wasn't talking about Islam. He had a specific religion in mind. This was a time when religion meant the religion of Jesus Christ and the message of Christ and the gospel of Christ. Alexander McLaren of Manchester wrote, quote, when the words were spoken... The then known civilized Western world was cleft by great, deep gulfs of separation. He was from Scotland. Like the crevices in a a glacier, he wrote, by the side of which our racial animosities and class differences are merely superficial cracks on the surface. McLaren writes, language, religion, national animosities, differences of sex split the world up into alien fragments. He writes, a stranger and an enemy were expressed in one language by the same word, I'm going to pause for a minute from my quote from Alexander McLaren to explain what he just said. In the Greek word, there was a word for stranger. It was the word xenos. And there was another word for enemy. It was the word xenos. The person who was different, the person who was strange, the person who wasn't like you, the person who didn't share your skin color or share your particular belief system or share your social and economic circumstances, they were to be kept away, viewed with suspicion. He continues... Alexander McLaren, the learned and the unlearned, the slave, the master, the barbarian and the Greek, the man and the woman, they stood on opposite sides of the gulf, flinging hostility towards one another, unquote. Paul is making the point that whatever this means, whatever it means to have a right relationship with God, whatever it means to know and love Jesus, whatever it means to be a Christian, this means that the hostilities cease. Paul knew that love doesn't deny sin and love doesn't ignore sin and love doesn't pretend that sin is not sin. Love saw the guilt of sin and then seeks a basis of pardon. Love sees the alienation of sin and seeks a ground for reconciliation. Love sees the definition and the defilement of sin and seeks a way of cleansing. Love sees the depravity of sin and then seeks a means of restoration. Love sees the enslavement of sin and then seeks an instrument of emancipation. Love sees the malady of sin and then seeks a balm of healing. And love sees the condemnation of sin and seeks a method of justification. And love saw the death of sin and then sought life. This is what the Bible means when it says love is at work seeking. And love will find what it's looking for. Now we understand what the Bible means when it says Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Love keeps seeking. Love keeps asking. Love keeps knocking. 
So what does Paul mean when he says that love is the fulfillment of the law? Paul recognized and believed what Jesus believed. We fulfill the essence of the Lord's command to us. We understand the law reveals our sinfulness. We understand the law compels us to go to Christ. But has the law ever, ever, ever given anyone the capacity to love? That's exactly right. The love can't save, the law can't save you. But love can. Only Jesus can do that. Jesus said that he came to a, not to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill it. And now we understand. He fulfills it because he is the source of love. The giver of love. The forgiver of sin. The redeemer and the reconciler. And now we understand that he's the source of love in 2 Corinthians 13. That the fruit of the Spirit is a love-filled life. Love is the royal badge of discipleship, John 13, 35. Love is the plain assurance that we've passed from death into life, 1 John 3, verse 14. So what are the principles that we glean? Paul says there is a debt that must be repaid. Paul says there is a debt that can never be repaid. That we love each other. There is one penetrating command that fulfills the law. We love people who love us, yes. Who are like us, yes. Who don't love us, yes. Who are unlike us? Yes. There is one truth that can release God's love inside of us. The truth is, the only mechanism for that kind of love has to come with God's help. We love people who are utterly different from us. How? Love respects the rights of others. Love refuses to harm others. Love seeks and finds a way to point people to Jesus. And now we understand Paul's point. We go, we show his love. I've talked often of one of my heroes, George Washington Carver, who some say might be the most brilliant human being who was ever born on the North American continent. There seems to be a spirited debate if it was Jonathan Edwards or George Washington Carver. My sympathies and sensitivities lean towards Carver simply because of the circumstances that he grew up in. He wrote, Anything will give up its secrets if you love it enough. He wrote, not only have I found that when I talk to the little flower or to the little peanut, they will give up their secrets, but I have found that when I silently commune with people, they give up their secrets also, if you love them enough. 
You see, if you love someone enough, they'll tell you the truth about what's in their heart. They'll tell you the truth about the condition of their circumstances. They'll tell you the truth about the darkness and the emptiness and the loneliness. Some of them might even talk about the wickedness. And then all of a sudden you have this amazing opportunity to talk about hope, to talk about grace, to talk about mercy. But in the end, the conversation will always return to the topic of love. But people don't really simply want to talk about it. They want to experience it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, we hope and pray that we would begin to at least entertain the notion concerning our debt and our duty and our desire to do what's right, to live what's right, to be what's right. And Father, we pray that this particular teaching would find a place in our hearts as we begin to evaluate service in light of love and we evaluate citizenship in light of love and as we look forward to considering personal convictions in light of love so that in the end we could actually do what Jesus has asked us to do, reminded us, equipped us, provided for us the mechanism to truly love. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.